Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello. When the Republican Convention reconvened on the morning of June 8, 1880, Congressman James A. Garfield of Ohio had precisely two nominations to be the Republican candidate for president. But by the early hours of the next day, on the 36th ballot, following a day unlike that of any political convention in American history or perhaps any other person, country's political history, James Garfield was the party's nominee for the presidency. Late 19th century politicians acquired a bad name in their own day, just read Mark Twain, and subsequently they have come to be seen not only as venal, but perhaps even worse, as boring. James Garfield was neither of those things. Literally born in a log cabin, he worked on a canal boat before schooling made him a teacher. Subsequent time as a student at Williams College revealed him to be a powerful intellect about whom tales were told ever after. For example, he could write Greek with one hand while simultaneously writing Latin with the other. He quickly became president of a small college, an itinerant minister for his church, and with the coming of the Civil War, he volunteered, became colonel of an Ohio regiment, led an independent campaign which gave him the rank of brigadier general, and then position of the chief of staff for one of the most important armies of the Union. All of this to say that if James Garfield had never been a politician, let alone been nominated and then elected to the presidency in such a dramatic fashion, he would still have been an interesting and impressive man. Now, C.W. Goodyear has told historian President Garfield from Radical to Unifier, which just as easily might be subtitled An American Life. Charlie Goodyear, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you very much, Alan. You know, what an introduction. I, uh, I, uh, I, I couldn't have phrased it better myself. So thank you for that. Well, longtime listeners know that I hate presidential history. So it is, uh, and I regard it sort of as some people regard, you know, military music and Lebanese government. Um, is it really a thing? I'm not sure. <laughs> but what I love about this, of course, is that the guy wasn't president for long. So mm. it's a good excuse to talk about a president, first of all. And he's just so compellingly interesting. Uh, it's a big book, but it could have been longer. Um, mm. There's so much about him, but we want to talk in a good historical fashion or doing historical bi- a historical biography. We want to talk about context. Yes, yes, of course. So as I said, he's born in a log cabin. Is he the last person, last president to be born in a log cabin? Probably. He- Yes, he was the last president to be born in a log cabin. And the reason for that were, you know, you're talking about context, the specific time in which he was born and the place he was born, which was uh, in 1831 on the Ohio Western Reserve. Uh, it was really this period of re- both regional and American history where these industrial forces that would transform the country over the course of that century, the 19th century, were really becoming in vogue. The railroads were starting to just starting to begin bridging the continent and all of a sudden these uh there's there's uh these uh dare i say civilizing forces that started to make these you know rustic images of american hamlets cut off from the rest of the country where you know for lack of a better term there was like a one-horse town uh the you know you started to see uh these old images of American log cabins really disappearing. And so Garfield ended up being this, you know, symbolically this uh, last American president to be born in a log cabin. And that took on, 
even by the time that he was elected, this great symbolic significance for the country. Yeah, I've been uh, I've revealed my obsession with Dayton, Ohio. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the idea that um, in 1830, it is a wilderness. The Indians have been expelled. Yeah. Uh, but the set whites have not yet quite moved into the area, just moved trickling into the area. And yet, 60 years later, we have the Wright brothers uh, are growing okay. up in Dayton, and Dayton has the most patents per capita of any town in America, and maybe the maybe the world, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, likewise, here's Garfield growing up in a log cabin. By the time he dies, Cleveland is, is uh, well, Cleveland has a position it doesn't have now. It is an industrial powerhouse, and it's the center of John D. Rockefeller was creating the Standard Oil Empire there in Cleveland. Right, yes. The uh, It's easy to forget these days, but the Midwest back in, you know, that early 19th century, it was uh, the wilderness. It was, you know, to, to quote another figure of that time, the howling wilderness. Uh, and uh, it was, Ohio in particular, was this hotbed that exemplified the transformation the country went under this, you know, within one lifespan you get from having, uh, you know, uh, many homes without running water and where, you know, uh, white colonists were still very hard to come by. And then, you know, by the end of those lifespans, you have a, a, this, you know, this uh, industrial uh, base of the country. Um, you know, it was a pretty transformative period and process. And uh, Garfield's life happened to coincide with all of that. So what's um, his, what's his family like? I mean, who's his fit dad? Who's his mom? Where are they from? How many yeah. brothers and sisters does he have? So on. Yeah, his, his, his family were, were uh, descended from some of the earliest colonial settlers of, uh, of colonial Massachusetts. The Garfields were some of the very earliest New Englanders. As a matter of fact, one of uh, James's ancestors uh, fired uh, the opening shots at the Battle of Lexington. And uh, the, as, as America grew older, the Garfields moved further and further inland as, as the country grew. And uh, along the way, you, you see this, uh, this archetype of the Garfield man emerge. Uh, there are these folk stories that I found across, uh, you know, upper New York and then into the Great Lakes area of these Garfield men performing these feats of strength. They were these great wrestlers. Uh, there was one story of a Solomon Garfield who was uh, James's grandfather uh, carrying a 200 pound millstone for <laughs> several miles without putting it down. And so by the time that, and these were working class men, these were what I'd say is a uh, uh, blue collar uh, Yankee stock is, is who the Garfields were. And uh, by the time that they reached the great lakes, uh, um, they were, you know, still within that type of work. And uh, the Garfield men had all, basically picked up uh, a variety of uh, working class jobs in the area it, and and they were all typically over six foot apparently they all were uh, blessed with strong muscles and great beards and they all were cursed by having very little hair uh so that was uh that was the uh that was the background of the male side of garfield's family uh, the female side uh, were the Baloos, and they were also New Englanders, but they were of uh, French descent. And physically, they couldn't have differed more from the male side. Um, nevertheless, uh, James's mom, Eliza, and his father, Abram, they both found themselves in this very interesting corner of America, the Ohio Western Reserve, um, in, in a similar uh, socioeconomic situation. They were in pretty... 
uh, dire straits, and they were moving west, like a lot of Americans, to find a better life. And they found this corner of uh, the uh, of of Ohio where they saw this opportunity, and they settled down. Abram got a job uh, building this great infrastructure project of the period called the Ohio Canal. And he was, right. uh, yes, and he was... Even before the even before the railroad, we have the canal craze. Yeah, well, the, 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 there was, for a brief window of moment in America, this idea that canals would be the great industrial connective tissue of our country. Uh, and you see that in New York with the uh, Erie Canal. Uh, that was the first of those big, you know, I- infrastructure projects that, uh, you know, our country created. And then the Ohio Canal was the attempt to do the same thing, but for the state of Ohio to build this waterway that would literally bisect the state. And they did that successfully. It wasn't, uh, as you can imagine, an easy job, but Abram was a supervisor uh, in the construction of a portion of that waterway. And uh, he, uh, you know, did very, he did well at first, and then he ended up losing quite a bit of money, and he ended up moving with his wife and his uh, family, which by then were composed of four kids, uh, into the deeper Western Reserve to a cabin that he was building with his half-brother. And I say four kids because there was actually a James Garfield in the family at that moment. This was in the late 1820s. But that wasn't the James Garfield that we'd come to know. Um, the, The first James Garfield who was born to Abram and Eliza ended up dying. And so the the future president had yet to arrive. But when he did, he was in family tradition named after the other child who had gone before him, which I, which I'd argue was a pretty grim way to start one's life. It's not uncommon. Yeah. Which 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 is surprising. Um, anyway. Yeah. Uh, so blue collar Yankees wilderness and yet. A passion for schooling. Yes. Everyone's creating schools. Churches are creating schools, academies. And it's amazing the educational opportunities that lie around you in the Western Reserve if you want to take a, up, take a, avail yourself of them. Yes, there was. There, there was a, for, it was a very interesting confluence of two different types of America, I think. There was this blue-collar Yankee tradition. There was also in this particular corner of, um, of Ohio, of the Western Reserve, where uh, education was seen as this imperative social need. And even when uh, the vast majority of uh, people in these, in these territories were, you know, not, were having to uh, have, send most of their children to work for most of uh, you know, their lives for most of the day, and who were very much hardscrabbled, they nevertheless portioned out part of the year to dedicate to their children's schooling. So it was an interesting uh, balance that they were striking socially in that part of America. And that tradition is also, in the history, they credit that to the New England tradition as well, that there was this, there was this, uh, there was this recognition of the need to balance, uh, you know, hard uh, uh, rural blue-collar work with enlightenment of the mind uh, as much as was possible. Um, which is, I think, an enviable balance to strike. We should talk about their. Well, he spends some time working on a canal boat. Uh, this is is his father dead by that time when he's when he's when he starts to work for the family. Yeah, he actually never knew his father. Uh, right. His father, his father Abram, died uh, in a uh, actually 
as a result of a fire that broke out on the Garfield cabin property when uh, James was not even two years old. And so he actually ended up being the only member of his family to not have any memories of his dad. And he was afterwards raised by his, his mom and his siblings, of course. And he ended up being the one who was almost subsidized by their labor. He was the one who received the most education. He was the one who was uh, kind of treated as the little kid of the family and given the most opportunities to you know, go out and get education elsewhere. You mentioned Williams. That was initially funded by his family. Hmm. Uh, before, before he goes to Williams, uh, through his labor and through, and through his older siblings, and that's another kind of pattern that repeats itself, isn't it, on the, on, in, in the American Midwest, um, he's able to go to a, a variety of schools before he heads east. In fact, so well that he's he's it, he's considered good enough to be a teacher by that point. Yeah, he was. So yes, to go back a little bit, he had this when he when he was an adolescent. He had this. He had gone to school a little bit, but he 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 gave into the temptation that all of us, I think, uh, succumb to once when we're young and we think we're going to run away from home and we're going to find this. Uh, you know, job and we're going to make our own way in the world and get away from like the rigors of home life. And he ended up running. But he away. actually did it. He actually, most of he actually <laughs> did it. And he did it in the way that at that time seemed like the most adventurous thing a young man could do, which is to go get a job on the Ohio Canal, which is the same, you know, uh, infrastructure project his dad built. Um, and there's a historian of the canal that wrote that what the cowboy was to the 20th century American, the canal was to the 19th century Ohioan. It was this realm of adventure and swashbuckling men who were, you know, plying their trade all through this still developing part of America, the Midwest. And when he was young and, you know, money was tight in the Garfield cabin and uh, his, you know, schooling, he wasn't really loving it that much. And he was not, he didn't really like the manual labor that was available uh, there at the time. So he gave into impulse and he ran away and he got a job on this uh, canal boat. And he was not very good at it. Uh, he uh, started off as a, a towpath driver. So he would be helping whip the animals that were pulling along the boat, along these uh, canals. And he would periodically uh, fall into the water. Uh, he would get into fights with other canalmen. That was apparently the recreational sport of the day, which is fighting on the canal. And uh, eventually he, he fell in, he almost drowned one night and he pulled himself out and he, he, he would later remember this, uh, this him miraculously surviving this drowning incident as this case of divine intervention. He, he's, he, 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 he later wrote that he thought God had saved him for greater work than canaling and also to look after his mother. So uh, he had that accident. And then afterward, he ended up getting sick with malaria, which finally sent him home. And he had been on the canal about two and a half months by that point. But it ended up being, as you point out, this transition point in his life. You know, there's nothing that focuses uh, one's mind on studying, like getting a taste for the hard life. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, he, he went back to school and he became this excellent student. Uh, specifically, he, he eventually he went from one school to another and then eventually he enrolled in a school called the Western Reserve Eclectic Institute, which was a school run by a church called the Disciples of Christ. And that was the denomination his family belonged to. 
And uh, like a lot of uh, rural Ohio schools at that time, it, it catered to the people of the area. So a lot of his fellow students were these uh, were also, you know, the sons and daughters of farmers. And uh, he 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 was both an educational force within the school. He had this intense competitive drive that everybody else noticed immediately. And as well as this, also this, this very natural social charisma that he, that, that people, students of that time there in their stories, in their histories that they wrote. And I've reviewed these, they all write of him as being that rare kind of fellow student who would dominate in the classroom, but who would somehow not alienate other kids while doing so. He, he wanted to triumph to be the best in class, but he also wanted to make sure that other kids still liked him and that he would celebrate their successes as much as he would his own. So it was this very interesting balance. So we've got a very already this interesting character, mm-hmm. someone who's developed perhaps because of his near drowning a volcanic ambition. I mean, it's mm. uh, terawatts of ambition. Yes. We'll see, and, and drive and f- and force and thrust. Uh, but he's got social charisma. Now, those two things often are, I would say, probably are present in every president. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, so. But there's a third thing, which makes Garfield, I was thinking about this, unique amongst presidents, um, I say maybe amongst five, and that's life of the mind. Um, you know, maybe about five presidents, intellectuals don't often become president. Mm-hmm. They talk to, they talk too much. They chop things up into too small pieces of logic. Um, it's hard to persuade. It's hard to charm when you do that. And when that's sort of your resting state. And yet it's clear that Garfield is remembered as a tremendous intellectual force. Yeah. Uh, as you say throughout the book, he even has a big head. Everyone comments on it. They just imagine in that age, they just imagine the size, the weight of that brain it must be incredible. But he, uh, but he is an intellectual. He was. I think he was perhaps the most intellectual president we've ever had in the White House. Um, it's funny you mentioned the head. It, it what you know, if if anyone's ever running for president, it's very important to have a distinctive physical feature. Being caricatured is a helpful thing in the long run. Uh, and for him, the thing that everybody settled on was his cranium size. He was, you know, by the time he got elected president, he was mostly bald, which accentuates head size. But some of the quotes were just absurd that I found. Um, Frederick Douglass gave this address to black voters in New York during the campaign of 1880, which Garfield won. And um, Douglass was saying how he, know, you know, fellow colored men, which was the term of the time. Um, uh, Garfield knows our struggle. He worked himself up from, you know, the lower depths of American society. I urge you to vote for that three-story headed man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was was this rousing, you know, this, this, this great principled speech. And then he mentions, and and it just snapped me out of it. I was like, what the heck? But uh, yes, no, one of he, he, I, so, so this intellectual drive, that volcanic ambition, as you so well put it, uh, it appeared in him at back at the eclectic almost immediately. Uh, he had he he was a great diarist from the, his teenage years onward, and that's what made the the research for this project so fantastic. Because when you have a mind like his and somebody who was able to eventually do what he did, you know his intellectual achievements. You know you've read the book. He authored eventually a proof of the Pythagorean theorem. He was a sitting Supreme Court attorney while also being in Congress. Um, 
it makes it such a rich experience to read the writings of somebody like that. And one of the things editorially that really helped, and you probably noticed this throughout the book, uh, throughout the year of 1878, when he was the minority leader in the House, he opened most every day of his diary with a Shakespearean quote. And when I was doing and when I was doing my initial research, I was in the Library of Congress reviewing these micro reels. I was like immediately I realized these are going to headline each chapter. I'm going to have one of these quotes that's going to open every single chapter, and its theme is going to represent the theme of his life at that moment. And that was a very easy editorial decision. But yeah, his his mind was remarkable, and um, uh, I, I think. I, th- I think his intellect had a lot to do with his humility. As you know, he did not, or at least he publicly said he did not want to run for president. And he had seen, by 1880, he had been in Congress nearly 20 years. And he had seen countless friends and mentors eventually chase the presidency and lose it and ruin their careers in doing so. He called, and he, he saw this happen so often. It happened to his friend, Salmon Chase. It happened to James Blaine. Uh, Garfield decided to dub this this uh, this senseless ambition for the presidency as presidential fever, and he described it as this very fatal disease that would infect good statesmen and turn them, uh, you know, president crazy and eventually lead to their political it's, career ending. It's a very common disease. Yeah, throughout, I mean, it's I, we see it all the time. It seems endemic today, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It does. Yeah. Uh, Everyone has it. We Before we get to that, the 1880 convention, which is a kind of a com- combination of riot and papal election, uh, we should talk, finish off his schooling. We should we should also mention God. Yes. Because he's part of this and disciples, the disciples of Christ. So he's, is he then, after his, he's done with the eclectic, is that when he starts itinerant preaching? Uh, or, or? Yes, he is. So he starts actually, so yes, good, good on you to drag us back to the chronological order. I didn't mean to jump ahead. He, um, he, he, uh, so when he was at the eclectic, he was such a talented student that eventually the, the, the school actually made him a part-time teacher as well as a student. So he, he was, he, he, I mean, just imagine the amount of drive and capability and social ability it takes to be promoted like that. He eventually got too big for the pond and he ended up going to Williams, Williams College in Massachusetts. And the reason he did, he wrote to Brown, he wrote to Yale, he wrote to Williams, and Brown and Yale wrote back and said, you know, here's our catalog. If you would like to attend, you know, send us another note and we'll, we'll see, you know, we'll, we'll see if you match up to our criteria. Williams president wrote back to him, you know, this random kid in Ohio and said, we will be glad to do whatever we can for you. And this leads to one of the best remembered things about 19th century higher education, the, the line from Garfield, an ideal college is a student at one end of the log and Mark Hopkins at the other. Yes, yes. And Mark Hopkins, of course, being that president who wrote him that line. Uh, and so he went off to Williams and, of course, skipping ahead, he became the only president, I believe, who has ever gone to Williams. So that was a very smart note that Hopkins wrote uh, that ended up paying <laughs> dividends. But he got to Williams and that is when he began, began preaching. He had already become a disciple of Christ. You convert when you're an adult. Disciples do not believe in uh youth being able to willingly, you know, with in full conscience become baptized. And among these New England congregations, he became this itinerant preacher and the disciples of Christ were a very peculiar movement. And they're still around today that put a lot of responsibility on their laity 
to preach themselves. Any member of a Disciples of Christ congregation is encouraged to go preach and to have their own interpretations of religious uh, uh, significance and philosophy. So Garfield went around New England in his time off from Williams, and he started making money as a preacher. And that's when he developed his he began to really grow confident as a public speaker, and that's something he later became very famous for. After he graduated from Williams, he was invited back to the Eclectic uh, with a, basically a secret offer that he would become the next president of the Eclectic mm-hmm. if he went back. And so he did, and by the time he went back to Ohio from Williams, he then began preaching confidently in the, uh, in the area around the Eclectic, which was a town called Hiram, Ohio. Um, and I can't think of a better way to start a political career than to be the president of this esteemed local institution and also a prominent preacher in the surrounding area. That is a very good foundation for a political career. And I believe Garfield knew that. And you could tell because the as soon as he got back to the eclectic, all of these students and fellow students who he'd taught and mentored over the past few years they were now in positions of authority and he started writing these letters to them basically saying, you know, uh, I see a political pathway opening before us. We can make this place Hiram our own. And that's where he began to do politics. So what year is this? How old is he? he this, this would have been in the early 1850s. So he was, he was in his, he was 25, 26 okay. when he began. To uh, 1850s, a couple things happen. He gets married. He becomes, Hiram becomes more of a, uh, I mean, all colleges are kind of high schools at the time <laughs> in America. So, uh, but it does become a a college college ish um, during his his time there. Um, and he uh, and his marriage is extraordinarily important. Yes, he marries someone who is his soulmate, and they have lots of children who, in many ways, have kept their kept their father's memory alive. And which is extraordinarily important for what happens afterwards. And he becomes a Republican, and he becomes a radical Republican. So. Quickly, let's get to the war and by describing those things. Yes, yes. So uh, the 1850s were, uh, the 1850s, I like to think of them as this time wherein America was basically forced to make up its mind over slavery. Uh, there were a series of political events and developments and social ones uh, that stretched from deals struck in Congress, like, you know, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, to things like the Dred Scott decision that increased, that that forced Americans everywhere to stop neglecting the issue of slavery and to basically take a hard, one stance or the other on it. And Garfield, the what was interesting about the Western Reserve and Hiram in particular was that it was this conduit to Canada. And so through town, through Garfield's college campus, when he was president, there was this tide of runaway slaves that would come through. And, you know, basically it, it, it gave this human face to a problem that so many white Americans of the time just abstracted away. And uh, Garfield was giving money to these runaways. Uh, the Western Reserve was also very socially progressive. That surprises a lot of people. It was seen as this... So some described it as the most radical territory in the Union uh, because of its, its, its adherence to the cause of abolitionism. And uh, the, this rising tide forced Garfield, like the rest of the country, to start confronting the issue of slavery. And the more he experienced it and the more he got to grips with, again, that human element of it, the harder he found to not be a radical. And so, you know, he was this young man, he was a preacher, he was increasingly socially conscious, and he was also very enlightened educationally. 
And th- those factors combined with the peculiar po- politics of the Western Reserve, it basically forced him to become a radical. Um, and then, uh, and he had, he also, uh, as I said, he had started his political career. He became a state senator in great part because of his influence over the community through his presidency of the school, through his preaching. And in Ohio State Senate, he was this radical. He, that, he, they, he was part of the radical triumvirate, was what they called him and two friends of his at the time in the Senate. And uh, then when the Civil War breaks out, he sees only one route to both doing the right thing for America as a country and for himself as somebody who has, as you described, this volcanic ambition. And he decides he's going to become an officer in the Union Army. And more than that, he raises a regiment using those oratorical skills, the political connections around Hiram, his presidency of, of the college. Basically, that regiment is comes out of that community. Yes, it does. People, I mean, it's 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 a shocking idea for many Americans these days. But back then, in times of great national crisis, you know, we had a volunteer-based military. Um, the, the professional army was very small, and so whenever a great conflict arose. You basically had influential men in your community, like let's say your town selectman or something. He would basically just give a few speeches in public and say, "Great men of you know Arlington, Virginia, um, let us go, you know, f- fight this f- fight for our country." And you would have um, these hordes of you know volunteer men become soldiers essentially overnight. And then they would march off to war and their leader, the person who raised them, that town selectman, he would be their their commanding officer. It was a very, shall I say, accelerated pathway to um, to, uh, you know, uh, getting stars on your shoulder. And Garfield saw and, and this is this is this is critical at that time. A lot of politicians all over country at the outbreak of the Civil War, they saw the political potential of becoming one of these officers. And Garfield did, too. He, he, he recognized that uh, the, the, whoever fought in the union, for the Union in the Civil War would be this country's le- political leaders for the decades to follow. And he was quite right about that. He was also very right, sorry to elaborate, on the direction the Civil War would go in. At the very outbreak of the Civil War, he, made, he, he wrote these great tracks where he basically predicted that the war would eventually be about slavery versus freedom, which for a great part of the war, it was officially not. Uh, he also foresaw that it would be a very long, bloody, sanguinary conflict, which was also a very unpopular view at the time. A lot of people thought the Civil War was going to be over within a year or less. Um, but he, he, first, he had this great foresight of seeing not only is this going to be a long, bloody war, it's eventually going to become this contest of morality over the uh the the righteousness of american philosophy of slavery versus freedom and he knew which side he wanted to be on and he also sensed how politically useful it would be to be on the right side so this college president preacher becomes a colonel i I meant i like other colonels of regiments i guess elected by his, uh, the guys that he had enlisted to be colonel, mm. uh, which is, nice, nice, as you say, nice work if you can get it. And yet, he's successful. Uh, last Thanksgiving, I was driving out to uh, out into Kentucky for a holiday and uh, cross over the Big Sandy River. Oh, wow. And, and as uh, because my mind is filled with things I don't need to know, I thought, oh, yeah, that's what Garfield's campaign. And then, lo and behold, your book shows up. 
and I can read all about it. So could you describe uh, briskly the Big Sandy campaign? Because that seems to me a, a crucial turning point in his future. I mean, it's hard to see how Garfield becomes Congressman Garfield or President Garfield without the Big Sandy campaign. Yeah, no, it was a it was a massive turning point in his career. And no one thought it was it was at the time that it was going to amount to anything. So as soon as Garfield raises this regiment, he falls under the command of Don Carlos Buell, which is a fantastic name for a Union Army general. Terrible general, but a great yeah, name. Yeah, fantastic name. And uh, Buell's army is basically tasked with conquering Kentucky. And, and Kentucky being a uh, being a border state and with its its easy access uh, from the south, it had developed in at, in the early period of the war into this no man's land. And Buell had hunkered his army in the very north of Kentucky, and it was facing down that winter a grim uh, a grim uh, basically a chessboard for how to conquer the rest of the state. Uh, so he was amassing his forces in the north. He was uh, a lot of his officers from West Point were trying to stay close to him. But there was this threat in the eastern wing of Kentucky from a from a rogue force uh, of Confederates commanded by Humphrey Marshall, who was a Confederate general. And uh, there was this and, and eastern Kentucky is not exactly a hospitable region of the world. As you know, you drove over it. It is this hilly, craggy uh, labyrinth of forests and creeks. And in the winter of, of, uh, 1862, uh, it, it was not an appealing prospect for any union officer to break off from Buell's force and to go into these hills to chase down a Confederate force that was generally causing mayhem and was thought based on intelligence reports to be pretty well equipped. Buell offered a mission to, to some of his subordinate officers to take a splinter force and to go basically try to chase Humphrey Marshall's rebels out of East Kentucky, out of the Sandy River Valley. And uh, uh, none accepted, except for this one who said, you know, I am a graduate of this place called the Western Reserve Eclectic Institute. And I know the, the president of that uh, institute has just raised a new regiment. What if, and he's a volunteer officer. What if we just send him over? And Buell thought that that sounded like a pretty good idea. And that was the way James Garfield inherited this throwaway campaign, this throwaway army campaign through Eastern Kentucky that nobody thought would be very important. And uh, it was, to cut a long story short, a terrible bushwhack that he nevertheless led very valiantly. And he led these Ohio boys through this, you know, rough, uh, difficult, wintry terrain. Some of their letters describing the landscape are just beautifully grim. Um, but eventually they succeeded in routing uh, the Confederate general from East Kentucky. The, that Humphrey Marshall's force was much less well-equipped. It was much less uh, intrepid than many people at the time thought in the Union Army. And so Garfield led this series of skirmishes that ended up clearing East Kentucky of the Confederacy which sounds more impressive than it was. Uh, the, the, uh, the number of casualties on both sides was fairly low. And, but nevertheless, by virtue of, and this is a story of, of Garfield's overall life, I think, by virtue of timing and him being able to seize the initiative and events just going 
the exactly the right way for him, he was able to claim a disproportionate amount of fame from being in the right place in the right time and leading his troops, admittedly very boldly, against a Confederate force because the victory of the, of the Sandy River Valley campaign ended up being one of the earliest Union victories of the war. It's one of those things that never shows up in the history books. Mm. But if you look at the Harper's Weekly at the time in the newspapers, it's huge. Yes. Uh, because nothing else is going on. The Union, the Northern public is, is starved for victories. They're starved for movement. And they've got a Kentuckian uh, man who thinks of himself as a native Kentuckian and who knows all about Kentucky in the White House. Yeah. And, and who is also, his focus is like a laser on the Upper South and on Kentucky and trying to keep Kentucky from becoming Confederate. <laughs> so all these things uh, come together to make Garfield a Brigadier General and uh, a hero of the Union. Yes, and there's this great quote that Lincoln gave to your point. Uh, I might have God on my side, but I must have Kentucky and uh, Garfield. And there, and you're right that the, you know Bull Run had happened and it had been a complete disaster. And as I mentioned earlier, the public's expectations in the North was that the Union would win this war immediately. And the fact that that had not happened and that there had been relatively few Union victories, it meant that any Union battlefield triumph, no matter how minor, uh, in that period was going to be vastly blown out of proportion. That's exactly what happened with Colonel Garfield. Uh, you know, he, he, he won this campaign and he became a brigadier and the press filled with all of these pretty breathless reports of what he had done. And very few of them had any basis in reality, but they helped his political image, which was important to him still, despite being in the army. So by the summer of 1864, which is like two years later, is he and is he elected to Congress in 1864? He had. He, he, he had been elected yeah. to Congress. He had just actually taken his seat. He had been elected about a year ago. Right. But he's also chief of staff to the Army of the Cumberland. Yeah, the Army of the Cumberland. Right? And to a fellow Highland, William S. Rosecrans, who's a very different, alike and yet very different Uh an engineer, patent holder, railroad money. He's made money by investing and being a railroad officer and also a Catholic convert. So I guess the, he and Garfield had things to talk about they, or argue about. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he is uh, a replacement for um, Rosecrans' chief of staff who dies at the Battle of Murfreesboro, Stones River. Uh, and Garfield is president of the Battle of Chickamauga. Um, could we very brusquely, because this is, uh, there are some... Civil War buffs, I know, because Professor Wikipedia explains this to me. They're very. This is this is where they see Garfield as a devious backstab. Yes, you know, yes. a holier and thou prig who shoves the Bowie knife all the way up to the hilt and gives it a twist. It, it is this very Shakespearean relationship between Brigadier General Garfield and Major General Rosecrans. Rosecrans was one of the senior most officers in the Union Army of the time, and. Uh, Garfield went into Rosecrans' command as a as a congressman elect. He knew that he was going to be going into the next Congress, but he still wanted to cut his teeth and do patriotic service on the battlefield because he had a sense that he still had a duty to fulfill, and that also he didn't want to be seen as avoiding his part of the fight. He wanted to. We should say uh, there are numerous congressmen who both serve as generals and go back and vote and serve as and serve officers. I mean, Benjamin Harrison, I think is fighting with Sherman yeah. uh, at Kennesaw mountain and then goes back to Indiana to run for election or something. Yeah, like and that. and, and it, William McKinley is fighting for Rutherford yeah. Hayes 
yes. <laughs> in the Union yeah. Army, which is quite a yeah. it's like a it's, it's a like thing. a presidential nesting doll situation. But uh, yes. the uh, but uh, yes, and so but when Garfield arrives in the Army of the Cumberland it, under Rosecrans in Rosencrantz's camp in Tennessee. Uh, Rosecrans makes this surprise offer. They hit it off immediately, and Rosecrans decides, I'm going to make you my chief of staff. And in order, and, and to make that worth your while, I promise that I'm going to make you a strategic partner to me. You're going to, you know, you're, you're not only going to be, you know, helping with sort of my correspondence and things like that, but I'm going to take you as a great confidant. And you and I were going to be this, you know, we're going to really whip the rebels and help close out this war. And Garfield writes home and he says, essentially, fantastic. This is a this is a this is good for me politically. He actually writes to his mentor, Sam and Chase, who's the secretary of the Treasury. And uh, he, he basically lays out to Sam and Chase, I think Rosecrans will do me well. Like this, is, the, the, this uh, role is going to help me get a better public image. I'll be able to serve the Union valiantly. And Rosecrans seems like the right kind of officer. He'll go out there and he'll aggressively take combat to rebels under Braxton Bragg. That was who they were facing down. And then Rosecrans disappoints Garfield. Rosecrans had a reputation of being this very audacious, this very aggressive Union commander. And as soon as Garfield joins his command against Garfield's wishes, Rosecrans starts to hunker down. He stop, He stops uh, campaigning actively. He, he builds up the town of Murfreesboro. Uh, always a pleasure to say that name out loud. And uh, he, he basically becomes this very this lethargic officer in the Union ranks. And Garfield starts writing letters to his political sponsors back in Washington. He writes to Sam and Chase and says, I am completely against you know, this hunkering down. I, uh, I, this, is a, this is a waste of my time. This is not serving the Union cause well. Rosecrans is uh, you know, not the man we thought he was. And no one writes to Sam and Chase if they want a secret to be No, kept. not at all. And again, let's translate this to modern times. Imagine a officer in our army writing to a member of the cabinet to complain about a commanding officer. It's pretty incredible uh, to think that that's uh, a breach of decorum. Nevertheless, when Rosecrans eventually leaves camp, it culminates in the Battle of Chickamauga, which is technically a Union victory, but it is a bloodbath. It is a, it is a surprise. I, I, it's usually thought of as the one Union defeat in the West. Y- y- yeah, so so technically maybe a victory, but it is the most Pyrrhic of the victories. It, it, it is a logist, logistically disaster, and it's very close to being a complete route for the Union. Anyway, and the, yeah, yeah, back back in the Lincoln, back in the White House, um, the... Uh, the cabinet meets to discuss the fate of Rosecrans and what to do about him. And and there's this dramatic moment, apparently, where Sam and Chase flirt, reads from this anonymous letter uh, from an inside officer in Rosecrans' camp and uh, ends this reading by saying, and that letter was written by General Rosecrans' great friend, uh, General James Garfield, and that apparently is the nail in the coffin for Rosecrans' career. And that's the, the and so it is, the, and it is this you know very interesting case of a again a Shakespearean betrayal between Union Army officers. Uh, so and, and that has long been uh, a very uh, I, I have friends who are military officers who've read this part of my book and. Uh, you know, their, their, their emotions, I can't 
convey on, <laughs> on, on the, in, in this format. But it is a very, you know, it, it's it's a dramatic case of betrayal at the very highest ranks of the army by by somebody who many thought better of, and and that ended up being a bit of an albatross around Garfield's reputation in certain circles going forward. It was this first case of him being this uh, very fluid. Um, I, I, I wouldn't say self-serving, but, but he has a sense for when it's no longer popular to be behind a cause or a person. <laughs> and so, yeah, that was quite an interesting episode in his career. So then he goes off to Washington and becomes a radical leader of the radical, one of the leaders of the radical Republicans. So very briskly, because we are going, we got, we've gone way over time. And this is belying my supposed contempt for presidential history. <laughs> um, no, we'll I apologize. About, that's all right. Reconstruction and corruption, because these are the two things that make Garfield a political force over 15, 16 years. Yes, yes, it does. He begins his congressional career just as he... So what's interesting about his army service is that there are periods which he is campaigning in the South and he is passing fields filled with slaves. And being the abolitionist that he he is, he wants to go in there and he wants to be part of this liberating Union army, but he is not allowed to. The Union army was not operating under those principles by the time that he was really an active field leader. So he has this great contempt for the army regulations and it sharpens his politics on the issue of slavery and the South. And by the time he enters Congress, he is more radical than he's ever been before. He is in Thaddeus Stevens's corner, although he does not like Thaddeus Stevens personally. I will say, I will say very few. Yes. Yeah, you're right. Very few people did like Thaddeus Stevens personally, but Garfield is the youngest member of the house. He is 33 at that point. He had just been the youngest general in the union army. And he was this firebrand. He was in favor of not only uh, immediate, the immediate ending of slavery, this was before the 13th Amendment, uh, but also uh, the rest, full uh, civil rights to be granted to former slaves. And he also is in favor of the redistribution of Southern plantation land to loyal whites and former slaves, uh, as well as the disenfranchisement or exile, or even the execution of leading Confederates. He was, he was, he was as far as they come. I've described his politics to contemporary friends and uh, of mine, and they say he reminds me of AOC. And I, and I don't know if that's a fair. Comparison. I was thinking Robespierre, but uh, Robespierre, yeah, that's, no, that's, no, unfor- no. that's unfair to AOC. But I mean, there, there is he is. That some of the most radical positions taken by any American serving American politician who can actually do other things than appear in the media. Yes, yes, exactly. And he 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 was on the spectrum of progressivism of that time in that Congress. He was as you know he was he was very much a, a progressive, and he had these military credentials to burnish his reputation. So he ends up being a, a real firebrand, and it actually costs him politically. He. He, he is uh, he is uncharacteristically for him. He alienates a lot of moderates. He, he becomes seen as this uh, trouble starter on the floor. He, he, he gives speeches as though he's um, preaching, you know, to an to an audience. And uh, that eventually grates on people. He becomes known as the learned gentleman from Ohio because he likes lecturing people so much from the podium or from the floor. And as the war ends, and then as Reconstruction drags on, uh, Garfield begins to moderate. 
and he he moderates himself for a variety of reasons. One, he personally tones himself down. We haven't really gone into into his personal life yet, but his early marriage it was to his soulmate, but they did not get along, and it was actually a very grim marriage for the first several years of their life. He even had an affair, um, and. As his as he matures personally, he moderates politically. And although he votes in favor of the Reconstruction Amendments, although he is initially in favor of, uh, you know, a, a, a hands-on policy with enforcing Reconstruction in the South, the tide goes out for the movement for a variety of reasons. Southern congressmen, you know, join Congress and they begin complicating the ability of further radical legislation to be passed. The Supreme Court becomes surprisingly uh, an enemy of Reconstruction policies, and they begin to complicate enforcement. And also, politically, the American public just gets kind of tired of worrying about the South and policing the South. And Garfield, and Garfield kind of alone, of all of the radicals, uh, survives this period. And he, be, and he survives this period because he begins to become much more of a centrist and he starts moving up the congressional ranks and becomes much more of a patient legislative leader, a technocrat, for lack of a better term. He focuses on fiscal legislation, financial legislation, um, and he becomes kind of the, uh, the workhorse of the Republican caucus in the House. And part of his work then is to focus on financial malfeasance within a Republican administration. He does. And it's very interesting. Uh, you know, this we're in we're in Grantissance, uh, in the 200th anniversary of Grant's birth was last year. Uh, Grant probably has never stood higher as a man, a general, but now even as president. And yet, in many ways, it's Garfield that created the material to sort of besmirch Grant as president and give uh, give ammunition to lost cause Democrats and then progressive 20th, 20, progressive 20th century historians and Arthur yeah. Schlesinger Jr. <laughs> to explain why Grant and, and Henry Adams uh, to explain why Grant is like the worst president in the history of the Republic. Yeah. Henry Adams reminds me of the uh, kid in class who doesn't want to do any work and makes fun of kids who do. Uh, the, uh, the, but the really smart kid in class, the very who, smart kid in class who makes fun. Yeah, of I, I'm not saying I'm not saying I was. I was yeah, no, no, no. Remember, but you're you're yeah. quite right. Grant gave uh, Gr- Grantism was marked by both heavy enforcement of Reconstruction in the South, and then also this this explosion of perceived abuses of power and corruption in the federal government. And this was very difficult for the Republican Caucus, and it birthed this reform movement where. Americans no longer wanted to see machine rings of politicians where basically uh, certain politicians were acting as political bosses. They were trading places on the public payroll in exchange for political favors, and they were using the federal government as a way to profit personally and politically. Uh, And Garfield did investigate one of those scandals involving the Grant administration regarding uh, financial, perceived financial corruption. But he was caught in this very awkward position. He, with the growth of the reform movement and the anti-Grant clean government movement within the Republican Party, and the Grant wing, which eventually became known as the Stalwarts, advocating for continued forcefulness in the South, he was caught in a very tough position and he threaded the needle, so to speak, in terms of placating both sides and doing favors for both sides, but never quite aligning with one way or the other. And he had a remarkable capacity. I got to say, this is one of the things that drew me to him as a figure. Um, 
Garfield was in the middle of every single major event of those decades. He was every single political scandal, for better or for worse, every single uh, momentous legislative event. He was always somebody who was in who who was involved somehow, and who everybody was saying vaguely nice things about. Um, so that was what was grant, great about him in the Grant administration. And then, of course, the Grant administration ends with this election crisis. Uh, the, the, this, the first contested disputed election in American history where the results are basically popularly and widely alleged to be tainted by fraud. And Garfield has a key role in resolving that as well. So Rutherford B. Hayes has a one term. Uh, it's now the second New Englanders in the, uh, it's the second, I would say, the second Ohio presidency. New Englanders <laughs> in, the, in the early 19th century used to sneer at about the House of Virginia, which uh, was interrupted only by four terms of, of, of John Quincy Adams, right. those all Virginians. But now we've got, really, the Republican House of Ohio, which lasts mm. until William McKinley. Yeah, right. Um, and, uh, it is, and Ohio is the, the pivot on which the politics and, in many ways, the industrial might of the United States rotates. Um, in the 19th century. Yeah. So it's not too surprising that in 1880, uh, Garfield is nominated to be president after Hayes is, is vowed to only serve one term. Mm. Um, but it is, of course, extraordinarily surprising. And we've been I've been waiting for this moment the entire time, and we're n- really near the end now. Um, this crazy, it's like a medieval papal election. It is a, ri- a riot with, a, with someone... Having being made pope, now the 1880 convention is insane. It is. I mean, this it must be the best thing to write about. I can only imagine how fun it is to write about it, this. It was a knockdown, dragout brawl between uh, these incredibly devoted factions of the Republican Party. Uh, you know, it, it it makes we think we live in exciting political times today, uh, but 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 um, imagine a political party that divides itself into two wings, one called the stalwarts, because they do not apologize for their republicanism. They see themselves as the true heirs to Grant and it's his true devotees. And, you know, they're they 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 basically believe in unapologetic uh, governance forceful governance and also the abuse of power. The stalwart wing of the Republican Party in that time thought the abuse of political power was a key part of exercising any leadership at all. They become Jacksonians. This is this is how things are done. Yeah. And uh, and they and they see nothing wrong with incentivizing people to participate in politics and to govern by personally profiting. They were the they were called the corruptionists for their beliefs. Yep. To emphasize this, they, 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 they see the corruption and they, per- and they argue that it is good. They argue, yes, they argue that it is good. And, and, and I don't want to get sidetracked, but some people have reapproached that topic recently. Um, yes, I, the, uh, but, and then the other faction opposing the Stowards are awful name, the half breeds, <laughs> which of course has negative connotations today, but back then it was it was it, was, it had negative connotations then too. Yes, that's it did. Why it did. The, and, and, that's and, why and, the stalwarts called them. Half-breeds. The stalwarts called them half breeds. Yes, and, and it does have negative connotations today too, or then too, of course, but for different reasons. Yeah. It, they were called half breeds because they weren't real Republicans. They were seen as mm-hmm. being deviants. 
who, the rhinos. Yes. Republicans in name only. Yes, exactly. Well, yeah, they're, they're, the history tends to rhyme, doesn't it? Yeah, it and does. uh, the uh, so entering this convention, each of these factions had their leaders. They The Stalwarts wanted Grant back in office for a third term, which was an unprecedented thing of that time. The half-breeds had rallied around James Blaine who, uh, the magnetic man, this incredibly charismatic political figure who had been great friends with Garfield for over a decade. And, uh, the, and Garf, and these were the two declared candidates and Garfield had entered the convention as a representative for another candidate who had not really gathered much attention. And people were, people had seen the writing on the wall that the party would not go either Grant or Blaine's way. And if it did, it would lose in the general election. And so what you have in the 1880 convention is this remarkable piece of kabuki theater where the factions are playing against each other. And Garfield is the only one who everybody is saying, again, vaguely nice things about who are on generally good terms with him. And every time there is a dispute between these factions and, you know, the pyrotechnics go off the person throughout this convention who's always seizing center stage and saying just the right diplomatic thing to get everybody back on track is James Garfield. And it's a pretty amazing series of events that I don't want to get too much far into, but, uh, it, you know, it's the, the effect of him being this peacemaker caused all of the observers. Cause it was this public event. Members of the public were attending this con- event in their thousands to watch who would be the next Republican nominee. And every time Garfield did something great, women would whisper, you know, isn't he good looking to one another? And politicos would try to figure out, they're like, is Garfield angling for the nomination himself? And when it comes time to vote, there is this long, long deadlock, and eventually the tide breaks, and people switch from Grant and Blaine. I mean, they go, as I said at the beginning, 36 ballots. Yeah. So the, it, the tide doesn't break until, what, 30th, 32nd? And then there's these, these the, this is the old school convention where you could see then movement from state to state yes. and then things catching on. And yes. This is eventually, and, and and you have this great scene where Garfield basically puts his head in his hands. Yes. Uh, like uh, an unwilling, like, like popes, like pope, papal elects <laughs> often do, you know, as are described in the College of Cardinals, you know, because they know what's going to happen in the next vote. Yes, he and, and they and they don't they don't want it, but they can't resist it. Yes, which is this, which which only adds in some people's mind to the perception that he really wants it because he's making yeah, such a public display of, oh, mm-hmm. woe is me! No, this is not at all what I intended. And to be honest, what, what do you what do you think about that? Uh, the, the, the term that I used with a friend of mine who asked that question recently was, um, he, again, as I mentioned earlier, his entire career, which was incredibly long, he, he was the best witness to reconstruction in the Gilded Age of anybody in America, I think. But over that course of time, he had seen so many friends, again, fall victim to what I called earlier and what he called originally the presidential fever, people pursuing the presidency and it being the end of them. They, you know, politically self-destruct. They, they either don't win it or they don't get the nomination, and they try to be. And, and so he was Blaine. Is, Blaine is twisted by his desire to be president. Bl- I mean, he, yeah. you know, he becomes useless as a politician. Yeah, Blaine is the, the Blaine is another Shakespearean figure that I just find yeah. amazing and fascinating. We don't have time to talk. We don't. We have time yeah, to talk. yeah. Unfortunately, so I can't go into that. But uh, he, uh, but Gar- so Garfield was genuinely afraid of the presidency. That said, he also knew not to run from it. So the term that I used, and he was open to the idea, but he could never bring himself to acknowledge that it might lie ahead of him. So the term that I used with my friend was he treated it like Schrodinger's cat. 
He knew the presidency was possible for him. He refused to actively open that box and look and see whether it genuinely lay ahead of him or not. He, so he, 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 he maneuvered himself in a way that kept all options open. But I think like all of us, he was a genuinely divided person and he really didn't know what he wanted. Uh, and, but, but what was great about him reacting like that and having this very strange view of the presidency, this, this almost noncommittal way, uh, and the way his life ended is the presidency did end up being the end of him. He was killed. So if we know anything about Garfield, we might have read Candace Millard's book. Uh, we know that he's shot by a guy who is insane, who's actually castrated himself. I just re- recently uh, found out. And uh, and who sh- uh, now who shoots him screaming, now Arthur will be president. The bullet lingers in Garfield. It creates eventually sepsis and infection, and Garfield dies of that rather than of the traumatic you know, wound from the bullet itself. Um, and that's his presidency. So, um, yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's, it's how, how many months is it until he's shot? He's shot about uh, two, three months in three months. And he in. dies, uh, three months later about. And so, but, but that shooting is the result of, um, him as the nominee and as the president trying to still keep peace between these different factions of the Republican party. You know, he had become in the later half of his career, the, the great peacemaker of the Republican Party. And eventually, in trying to balance these factions, he fails. He uh, ends up having this great schism with the stalwart wing of the party in during his presidency. And it leads, and the rhetoric that comes out of this fallout inspires this crazy man to shoot Garfield. Um, and that is a... that I, I just... I can't in this moment attach as much poetic significance to that as I should because of limitations of time. But it, it is this very compelling thing. And by being shot and by being shot by somebody who identified with the stalwarts and with that corrupt wing of the Republican party, Garfield's death accidentally inspires as Ms. Millard points out very well in her excellent book, the beginning of the American professional civil service movement and the beginning of government reform. The reason that your tax man, your postman, your sheriff, is not picked because they're a Republican or a Democrat and that they're instead like a career professional employee. It's because of Garfield's killing. Garfield posthumously began this, uh, he became the figure for clean government in America and a lot of momentous legislation was passed in his honor. And he became remembered popularly as this great, uh, this, this lost progressive of American history, this person who could have fixed all of the problems that were emerging in America in that time. And I think that's probably an unfair memory. He was a much more, as you know, a much more nuanced figure morally, politically, uh, ideologically than he was remembered because of the circumstances of his death. Uh, he, and he took a long time to die. And a lot of, and it, and it paused the country basically for three months. And the scenes of that period are, I mean, it's just honestly a historical writer's dream. And uh, I try to, as you know, draw that out as best I can in what space I have in the book. My guest has been C.W. Goodyear. The book is President Garfield, From Radical to Unifier. Charlie Goodyear, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Oh, thank you. It was my pleasure. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone. 
and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 